I don't have a, a set, I don't have bags of all the different types of blood, you know, ready to go for the different species. And we don't always have those animals who are healthy donors who are available. I'm Helen Pitlick, and this is Bloodworks 101, the podcast that inspires you to give time, money, or blood. If you've spent much time in West Seattle, you might have seen Bay and Jay preening out and about in the wild. While he's huge in his own right, she's definitely the bigger of the two. Bay and Jay are beloved local celebrities, but they're not singers. They're two resident bald eagles. And in true star fashion, they have plenty of headline-making drama. Things weren't looking so good for Bay in March of 2021. Onlookers spotted her downed at a boat ramp on Alki. You know the Steve Miller band hit Fly Like an Eagle? Bay didn't seem to want to fly, and something was off. Time was ticking, ticking, ticking. Fortunately, Fish and Wildlife was able to capture Bay and transport her to Paws in Linwood, Washington, just a few miles up Pacific Highway from our Linwood Donor Center. And here's where things get really interesting for us. The West Seattle blog reported that Bay received a blood transfusion. Now, I recently had the pleasure of visiting Cascade Raptor Center, a few miles from Lane Bloodworks in the hills of Eugene, Oregon, and left fascinated by these beautiful creatures. Truly the definition of majestic. It got me thinking, what would it look like for an eagle to donate blood? So, in Bloodworks research fashion, I sat down, virtually, with Dr. Nikki Rosenhagen of PAWS to learn all about wildlife veterinary medicine and avian blood transfusions. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into wildlife medicine. I, I went to college and I knew I wanted to work with animals, but I didn't actually want to be a vet. And I graduated, I was getting close to graduating from college and thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> About halfway through, I started looking at internships that are externships that, that got to work with animals. And I encountered wildlife rehabilitation and I had never even heard of it at the time. And so I started applying all over the country and I got accepted to a number of places for, for unpaid internships. And one of the places was pause. And I just, that looked appealing to me. And so I decided to move. So I moved from Michigan out to Seattle for a three month unpaid internship, <laughs> which in retrospect is a little bit crazy, but I moved and I absolutely fell in love with it. I finished my internship, stayed on as a volunteer and then got hired and then kind of worked my way up until I was a rehabilitator. And then I did that for three years before they essentially talked me into going to vet school. And so then I left pause. I went to vet school at the university of Illinois, where I continued working with wildlife. They have a wildlife um, clinic there as well. And with my ultimate goal always being to come back on Saturday is my four-year anniversary back here as the vet. And um, so, yeah, I just fell in love with wildlife just by having had zero experience working with them. And then all of a sudden getting thrown into it and just realizing that this was the field that I was absolutely made, made for. So that's awesome. And congratulations on the second milestone. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly PAUSE is an awesome organization. Can you tell me a little bit more about PAUSE and what you do there? PAUSE as an organization is multidimensional. There is an, an animal shelter. There's an outreach where they, they work with a lot of kids and they do classrooms and, and public outreach and things like that. And then there's the wildlife hospital. And while we are all part of the same organization, it is separate staff and separate buildings. So our hospital is a standalone wildlife hospital. We don't see any cats and dogs at our center. I don't work with any cats and dogs here. We take wild animals. 
both native and non-native species. And we take in probably, I think, 60% birds. And we see um, it's increasing almost every year, but right now about 5,000 injured, orphaned, and sick animals. And so what we do is we take these animals in, we assess them. Certainly there are cases that are, they're very badly damaged or they're dying, they're agonal. And so in those cases we do euthanize, but for anything that we can, you know, we, we try and fix them. We are doing surgeries. I did a a procedure this morning on a five gram baby bird. And then we rehabilitate them in order to get them healthy and strong enough to get back out into the wild. And then we have a whole separate staff who he's a a naturalist and his job is to find where these animals should go. And so he'll look into habitats and carrying capacities and and things like that and, and get these animals back out there. And so it's a very much a team effort. We have lots of different specialties, even within the hospital, but I, I think we do a really good job of practicing really high standard of care for these wild animals. What got this whole idea kind of crystallized in my mind was Bay the Eagle found in West Seattle. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me Bay's story. To the best of our knowledge, she was just down and we don't know why. And the way that PAWS works at our hospital, our rehabilitation staff, most of the time, they're the ones doing the initial examinations. They're very highly trained. And so our, our rehabilitator took a look at this animal. She did her physical exam and she, we always collect a little bit of blood on animals that are large enough to do so. She was very pale. And while she was alert and reactive, I think was a bit weak in good body condition and noticed some blood, some frank blood um, around her cloaca. Birds have a one common opening for um, feces, urine and urates, and then their reproductive output. And it's just one, it, it's the vent um, and the cloaca is the organ that collects all of those things and releases. You would say like the perianal area in a, in a mammal. So we collect blood and we measure packed cell volume or PCV, um, which is kind of analogous to a hematocrit is technically a little bit different, but essentially the same thing. So we're looking at the number of red blood cells as a percentage of the total volume of blood. And then we look at the grams per deciliter of total proteins, which for the most part is looking at albumin and then globulins. And then we can also measure in between the red cells and the plasma, there will be a, often a little white line, which are the white cells. And we just call that a buffy coat. And that it's not a ton of information, but it gives us an idea about their hydration. If they're anemic, they have a really heavy buffy coat, then we worry about maybe an infection or or some severe inflammatory disease. Typically for a bird, a normal packed cell is anywhere from, we often say 35 to 50 or 30 to 50% of the blood should be red blood cells. Um, And then our grams per deciliter of total proteins is kind of, again, 3.5, 3 to to 5. And it's going to, vary a little bit based on the species and their natural history, but generally within those ranges, we're pretty happy. Her pack cell was eight, <laughs> um, 8%. So she only had 8% of her blood was, was made up of cells instead of the, the minimum of 30 that we want to see. And her total proteins, which again, normally the minimum that I'd want to see is, you know, two and a half is, is still pretty low, but three, um, hers was one. The fact that they were both down, the fact that she was in good body condition, otherwise alert, and the fact that they saw some frank blood from her, made us think that this was an acute blood loss situation rather than, you know, other causes of anemia would be like a, a chronic disease or a chronic inflammation. Because of her mentation and her history, she, we thought she had a pretty decent prognosis. So we had a, um, a golden eagle in care for quite some time recovering from a shoulder injury or a wrist injury. Very stable bird, had been doing really well, just reconditioning. And um, we volunteered him to be a blood donor. <laughs> you know, we make sure that they're healthy, certainly before doing it. But And we collected a blood sample from him with an anticoagulant mixed in so that it wouldn't clot. And then we placed an IV catheter in bay and we ran the blood right into her. We do it over, you know, a prolonged period of time. And then we're monitoring them, of course, for transfusion reactions, things like that. And she did really well. We found out it was a GI bleed from what seemed to be an overgrowth of a bacterium, um, clostridium. 
So we treated her with an antibiotic for that and she bounced back very quickly. Um, you know, and then we were measuring their pack cell and their total solids, that, that total protein every few days until they're stable and looking good. And I think she was only with us for a month, if even that long. So she made a very, a very quick recovery and, and her, all of her blood values were normal at the time of release. The golden eagle did great. He bounced back. Um, we took a very low percentage of his body weight and blood. So it was very safe. So that's something that really stood out to me. Golden eagles and bald eagles are separate types of eagles. And I'm thinking like, I can't even give blood to my brother because we're different blood types. How can across species, how do those blood types work? So we honestly don't know, to my knowledge anyway, a whole lot about blood groups um, in birds. In the chicken, they know for sure there are 28 different blood types in chickens. But if you ask me in, an, in a golden eagle or a bald eagle, I don't know. Um, I assume that there, it's, it's going to be something similar where there are many numbers, many different types. However, we find that when we do a one-time transfusion, that animal, of course, doesn't have antibodies yet to that that other eagle. And so we can often get away with it. You certainly can do a major and minor cross match, just where we're, we're mixing the blood on a slide with some saline and looking for agglutination or clotting of that blood that would make us think that there are antibodies, but um, it's not a thing that we find almost ever. If we were to do a repeat transfusion, then we would have to be very careful and make sure that there is, um, they, they are matching blood types. However, I will say that with, with wildlife, if they need multiple blood transfusions, their prognosis is probably quite poor for long-term. So we are almost never going to pursue a second blood transfusion in an animal that is not responding well to the first one. Heterologous, so between species transfusions are the least ideal type. However, especially in wildlife, I don't have a, a set. I don't have bags of all the different types of blood, you know, ready to go for the different species. And we don't always have those animals who are healthy donors who are available. Obviously, uh, if you can give an animal a transfusion from the same species, that's going to be ideal. You're going to have the longest life of those red blood cells in that case. Um, if you're doing it um, across species, then having them as closely related um, taxonomically as you can seems to be helpful. But we do, you know, we've done this multiple times where we have given across species transfusions and it just buys these animals enough time, a few days to start bouncing back. Avian red blood cells don't live as long as mammalian. And so their turnover rate is faster. And so they tend to respond quicker to blood loss than do mammals. And they actually tolerate um, large amounts of blood loss better than mammals do. Oh, that's interesting. How do you know how long their red blood cells last? I think I think it's something like so mammals, we're talking like typically a hundred days or so, give or take, certainly it varies by the species. But I think in birds it's more like 30 to 40. I did look it up and I just can't remember off the top of my head, but it's significantly shorter, like you know, by a factor of two or three. So one of the things that we'll look for on a slide is for evidence of regeneration. And even in a bird that doesn't have any history or evidence of blood loss. Um, they always have evidence of regeneration where you might not see that in a mammal just because the, the turnover rate is so much slower um, that we don't see that. So they, they just respond better. They, they tolerate blood loss far better than mammals do in most cases. So in humans, you have to be a certain size to give blood and, you know, your, your blood counts have to be the certain sure, you know, sure. level and bald eagles are big, but golden eagles are also big. Is there a sort of size limit that you can uh, take blood from? We typically say that we can very safely collect 1% of an animal's body weight, which roughly translates to about 10% of their circulating blood volume. We can easily collect that for diagnostic purposes or for transfusion purposes, and that animal is going to do just fine. In fact, we could probably go up to 20 or even 30%, and they 
you know, the, the studies have shown in a lot of bird species that they still will do quite well. We don't, we don't push it. Um, so we typically stick to about that 1%. Certainly, you know, the smaller the animal gets, the less beneficial it's, you know, if, if I'm talking about a crow, then I'm only collecting a few mils, milliliters of blood, in which case, you know, unless I'm transfusing to another crow, it's, it's not going to be particularly helpful. You know, me collecting two mils of blood from a bird and giving it to a bald eagle is probably not going to be beneficial. The size cutoff is also going to depend on the size of the recipient, if that makes sense. We typically though, I have collected blood from, yeah, usually they're about a thousand grams or larger, which is about the size of a red-tailed hawk, maybe. Obviously you say, you know, within the same species is ideal. Could say a chicken give to a bald eagle or a turkey, a big bird, <laughs> give to a bald eagle. Yeah, I, yeah, de definitely. Um, and, you know, if it was an emergency situation, that's all you had, then I think it would be worthwhile as long as that, you know, the donor was was stable enough. A bald eagle and a golden eagle are much more closely related than are a golden eagle and a chicken. <laughs> and so it just seems to be from the, from the research that that's been done is that the closer related they are, the better the cells are received and the longer they live. Um, and so I think sometimes if, if you get really far away, you may only have a few hours before those cells are destroyed, in which case it, it may negate the, the, the point of doing it at all. That's just so fascinating. <laughs> what, what we do with at Bloodworks is, so if you donate whole blood, you know, donating blood, you separate it out into components like platelets, plasma, red cells. It sounds like, you know, with, you're lucky if you even get, you know, the same species, but are there cases where you would give a bird or an animal platelets or plasma and how, how would you process that? No, we wouldn't. I, we would be transfusing whole blood or probably nothing at all. We will sometimes give synthetic colloids, um, which are not really used much in human medicine, I don't think anymore, but we will use them in, in wildlife medicine um, if we're having an issue with blood pressure and we just need something, a volume expander, but we don't have blood to do it. We'll use synthetic colloids, crystalloids, but we don't separate out the blood products. Oh, interesting. And so a colloid, it sounds like it's just some sort of fluid to bulk up the... Yeah. So crystalloids are small little fluids like, like sterile saline or um, lactated ringers. I, I'm not sure what ones you're familiar with, but um, they're free to go you, wherever you put them, they're going to diffuse where they need to go. So you can put them in the vasculature and they may go out into the soft tissue if the soft tissue is dehydrated or they may come in. So they're, they're small and they can move where they want. Colloids, um, these synthetic colloids are larger molecules that essentially wherever you put them, they're going to stay and they exert onpotic pressure. So they'll pull fluid into them. So if we have an animal who's hypotensive or hypovolemic, if they have, they have a low blood pressure, low blood volume, we put these synthetic colloids into their vasculature directly. So we can either do that intravascular or intraosseous into the bone. Um, then we're, we're doing a volume expansion into the vasculature that way. And then also pulling additional fluid into the vasculature to help um, bulk that up, if that makes sense. That, that increases our blood pressure, improves perfusion, and can, you know, in cases of shock, um, can be really life-saving. I recall from, you know, elementary school, birds have hollow bones, right? They're so big but they're so light. And in humans, red blood cells come from our bone marrow. So how does that work with birds? So birds have some hollow bones. Um, they're, they're pneumatic, so they communicate with the respiratory system, but not all of their bones are hollow. It's in most birds, it's the humeri, so that each humerus, and then the femurs, and then you know a couple of other smaller bones, but the, the other bones are not hollow. And so those bones do have marrow in it and they are producing cells. So it's, it's, um, it's a kind of a trade-off because they need the lighter skeleton so that they can fly, but they still need to, to do, produce the, the red blood cells. And so they do have marrow, just not in all of them.
do birds like because they only have so many bones making blood are there any hematological differences about the carrying capacity of the red cells yeah is it more so than in humans well so you know I, i don't actually know about the oxygen carrying capacity specifically of the red cells Birds have a much more efficient respiratory system um, than do mammals. Um, They are oxygenating their blood both on inhalation and exhalation because of the way it moves through. It moves in a circuit rather than in and out. And so they're they're constantly providing oxygen to their body rather than only half the time when they're breathing. But the actual structure of the red blood cells and the hemoglobin, I am actually not sure. (laughs) What? What's an eagle like as a patient? You know what? They, they're quite variable. Sometimes, and, I, and I'll say that in general, anybody who works with eagles probably knows this. The um, female bald eagles are, they are feisty and they're aggressive and they have attitudes and they are, they are the ones, they're bigger. Um, they're, they're larger than males. And so they are the ones that we can always tell, you know, just from looking at it, even if you don't know the, the weight of an animal, the mass of an animal, you can say that's probably a girl. That's probably a boy. The males tend to be a little bit more relaxed. Not that, not that any of these animals like us um, or, you know, are happy to see us, but um, the females have, um, they have a little bit more spice and spunk and they can be a little bit more challenging to work with. The, the males are a little bit easier. You know, they are, we, we certainly respect their weapons. Um, their talons are incredibly strong and very sharp and they certainly will use their beaks as well. That's not typically their primary method of um, trying to inflict either injury or or protect themselves, but they certainly can. So when we work with them, we wear heavy leather gloves um, and we keep them covered as much as possible. So keep their heads covered. We also will use hoods, um, which falconers will use sometimes where they put over their head to cover their eyes. And those in my experience work beautifully with eagles. Um, You know, unless you need to be working on the head, especially if you're going to be handling them a long time, we put federal bands on all of our birds before release, which can be a little bit of a prolonged process as they're measuring and getting everything on. And so when we get those hoods on them, those birds tend to calm down because um, otherwise it, it can be very stressful and they're very strong. So holding those birds in hand um, can be pretty exhausting. <laughs> and so it sounds like at least with your eagle patients, you, you take a blood sample regardless to get an idea of the blood. Is that something that you do for all of your patients? Not all of them collecting a blood sample from a hummingbird is quite challenging. So there's a, there's a size limit. So most of our seabirds, we get a lot of seabirds. Um, we'll do blood work on them, almost all raptor species, but a lot of our smaller songbirds and things like that, little passerines, it, it's not that practical or feasible to do it. And, and, you know, and then when you're thinking about numbers and we're taking in 5,000 animals a year, it's, it gets to be a little bit cumbersome. Um, but you know, certainly our, our bears and we get bobcats and otters. We're not doing it on things like like squirrels and opossums regularly. It's more more for the animals that are large enough to give it and that that information would be critical in the way that we're going to manage the case. I love that. <laughs> um, what is something that you want everybody to know about paws, about the work you do, about eagles, about you know, anything related to wildlife medicine? What I think is the most important thing is that pause is here to help. We are in the business of trying to help these animals and whether that's helping you figure out how to help an animal or resolve a conflict. And so for people who are having, who have questions or concerns about wildlife, or if you encounter a wild animal, I just encourage you to call us rather than trying to guess, you know, should I pick up this baby crow that I found and bring it in? What we want is to keep these animals out in the wild or get them back out into the wild, give them their best shot. And so if we can help facilitate that, then then we will. One thing about our donors is they love saving lives and they love the Pacific Northwest and the Pacific Northwest, you know, our unique wildlife is something that's just so critical to that. Yeah. Um, This has been so cool. It's just 
so special for me to get to talk to you about this. I love raptors. I love wildlife. I love blood. This is really going to be a treat for people. So thank you again. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks so much to Dr. Nikki and Paws for this information and all of their great work to save lives in our community, large and small. And if this inspired you to act like a golden eagle and give up a percentage of your body weight for someone in need, make your next appointment at bloodworksnw.org schedule. We'll see you next time, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode of Bloodworks 101.